Hey, good morning and welcome to New Spring. Welcome to all of you here in the South Auditorium, North Auditorium, those of you watching online and television, and I do know I'm overdressed. <laughs> but uh, I have a rabbi friend who passed away, very close friend, and there's a service for him today, and I've been asked to speak after the next service, so if you'll just bear with me. I, I'm not used to speaking in a suit. I feel like David when he donned Saul's armor and he said, I can't fight with this, but uh, I'm going to do my best today. This last week, I had to be in Connecticut to train leaders, uh, church leaders, and I had to leave on Thursday morning, and my, my hope was that I could fly back in time to be in the services yesterday, but as I saw the storm bearing down on the eastern seaboard, I thought, I better tape the message, which I did, and it played last night in both of our services. But I guess all of those thoughts led me to the title of today's talk, and that is, will I be evacuated before the storm? I was just in the very point in North Carolina where the hurricane made landfall. Magnificent, beautiful country. Met some of the sweetest people in the world. And so I was concerned greatly for them. And storm's been bad enough. And unfortunately, as I got ready to leave the house this morning, I found that it already claimed 14 lives. And that's bad enough. But thankfully, it wasn't quite as bad as they thought it might be. But they evacuated millions of people that were in harm's way. And I thought about what I need to talk to you about this weekend, because there is a storm coming. The Bible calls it the tribulation, and it's global in nature. And last week, we talked about a mass evacuation that we see in the last days. Many times, it's called the rapture. And so, having talked about that last week and recognizing that the storm is coming, which we'll talk about next week, the question I think for you and me living in our times in 2018 is, will I be evacuated before the storm? Uh, will I go through the tribulation or will I be evacuated before the tribulation comes? And that's a really important question to ask because let me tell you what Jesus had to say about the tribulation period when he was on the earth. In Matthew 24, 21, Jesus said, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again, and verse 22, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. We won't spend a whole lot of time on the tribulation period because it's a pretty lengthy part of Scripture, and yet we know it to be seven years in duration. But we can look at that and look at what the Bible has to say about it, and we can say, well, is it going to be like it was in World War II, maybe like the Holocaust, or will it be like some sort of expanded edition of 9-11? And yet Jesus comes back and says, no, first of all, there never has been a time in the world that will be the equivalent of the tribulation. Number two, Jesus said, thankfully, there will never be such a time again. But then he adds this third thing, which I find really important, especially knowing what I know about what the Bible has to say about the tribulation. Jesus said if those days weren't cut short, hence the seven years. If those days weren't cut short, no one would survive. Now, with seven billion people on our planet right now, that's a pretty terrifying consideration. In fact, if you study Revelation carefully and thoroughly, you will see that it at least suggests that half the world's population may die in the tribulation period. I don't know that I've got complete interpretation on that. God will reveal in time what exactly all of that means. But I do want to know, where does this leave us? Are we going to go into that period of time? Will we go into part of that period of time? Will we not experience any of it? And then the second question that I want us to start out with today as we begin to consider things is what is God going to do in that seven-year period of time? 
Well, those are big questions. And so with that out of, in, out, of the play, out of place today, let's jump right in and see what we can learn from the Bible. Need to tell you this, this is going to be a working day. And what I'm about to tackle right now, let me just speak my heart. I've been preaching since I was 16, pastoring for 42 years. There is no more difficult concept to explain than what I'm about to explain. This is the highest hill I ever have to climb to explain something because it's complicated. With that in mind, you can't drift in and drift out of this message. You're going to have to work as hard as I work, maybe harder. Secondly, and I'm going to ask for this, no, no distractions this morning. If, you're, if, you're, if you get a text, please don't leave the campus because that will disturb people while you're walking in and out. Uh, just get your text from God and let's see what's happening from that person later on. And if you do have to leave, just please watch the rest of the sermon on the monitors because this is so critical that we understand this. It's, it's not something that you can pick up a little bit here and then drift out of the sermon and pick up the rest of it here. You're going to have to work with me to understand what God is saying. Here's the best thing. I always say this when I get to a point like this. It's eating lobster. You ever like eat a lobster, you know, if you love lobster. It's a lot of work, but the meat's real good. So that's what we're going to experience for the next few moments. We're going to have to work, but the meat is so important because we're going to tackle this question, what happens uh, with the rapture? Will we go through some of it, all of it, none of it? And then what's God up to uh, with the tribulation? So here we go. Let's pick it up. This is in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel's one of the most important books in your Bible. It's in the Old Testament, but the book of Daniel if you read it, it's just the coolest book in the world because half of it is narrative and it's great stories like Daniel in the lion's den, three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, a lot of cool narratives, but it's also prophecy. About half the book is prophecy. I do not believe it's possible to understand Revelation without the book of Daniel. Daniel is like the key to Revelation and it's like the key to the last days. So that's why it's such a very important book for us in the last days. In fact, someday, I was just thinking about this. You pray about this. I was thinking about next summer, in our summer series, just unpacking the book of Daniel over like 10, or 10 weeks or so. It'd be a great study. But here's the thing that you need to realize. Daniel is going to tell us what the seven years is about. He's going to identify it better than anybody else. And he's going to give us a sense of what God is up to. A little history. Daniel was carried away captive into Babylon when he was a kid. And we talked about this in Kings and Queens. God had been saying to the people of Judah and Israel, if you don't stop worshiping idols, I'm going to let you get carried away into captivity. And they didn't take him seriously. And ultimately, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, came and wasted Israel and Judah. Well, at first, Israel was taken by the Assyrians first, but he really wasted Judah. And he carried away captives. And this is what the Babylonians did. He carried away captive the best and the brightest young people in Jerusalem. And their idea was to inculcate the Babylonian system into these young Jewish intellectuals so that they would actually become top executives in the Babylonian government and missionaries to their own people for Babylon. Now, I guess in the way of the world, that's a pretty smart way of doing things. But here is Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah. They're carried away captive and they're put into the palace to learn the ways of Babylon. Daniel turned out to be a top executive. As you read the book of Daniel, you'll see that he was perhaps the most influential man in the world because of his proximity power in Babylon. But Daniel's not young anymore. He's elderly. He's getting up in years. Daniel knows that 100 years before, even before Israel or Judah went into captivity, well, before Judah went into captivity, Jeremiah had said that Israel would serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. 
And now Daniel looks at the clock, and the 70 years are basically up. And what's more, when you go into Daniel chapter 9, in the first verse, the Bible tells us it's the first year of Darius the Mede. So the Babylon's not, Babylon's not running things anymore, and the 70 years are up. And Daniel, hey, put yourself in his place. He wants to know, when can we go home? You know, if the 70 years are up, and we're supposed to go home in 70 years, and the Babylonians not even in authority anymore, the Medes are in authority, when do we get to go home? So he does what you and I ought to do when we want to know the answer to a tough question. He prays. And hey, we know Daniel knows how to pray. That's how he wound up in the lion's den. So Daniel asked God, what's going down? What's the deal? Hey, did you ever pray and ask God for something and then the answer came back way bigger than you ever dreamed? It was like that's what happened here. God said to Daniel, I don't want to just tell you when you can go home and when the 70 years are up. God said, I'm going to tell you the future. I'm going to tell you the ultimate future. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen all the way to the very end of things. Let's read together. In Daniel 9, verse 22, God said to Daniel, I have now come to give you insight. In other words, stuff you wouldn't have if I didn't show you. I'm going to give you insight and understanding. So again, Daniel's asked about when's the 70 years up. Watch this. Verse 24, God said, hey, it isn't just 70 years. 70 sevens, 70 sets of seven are decreed for your people, Judah, Israel, and your holy city, Jerusalem. So God is saying, look, I'm going to show you something you wouldn't have seen before. We're not just talking about 70 years here. We're talking about 70 heptads or 70 sets of seven years. And God said at the end of those 490 years, he's going to do several things, six things here, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy or the most holy place. So God said to Daniel, hey, we're not just talking about 70 years here. We're talking about 490 years. Well, what exactly was God saying he was going to do at the end of 490 years? I mean, we know what's going to happen at the end of 70 years. That's what Daniel was asking about. Jews can go home. But God said, wait a minute. I'm going to tell you about 490 years. What happens at the end of 490 years? Okay. Number one. Put an end of transgression. That means literally to hold back rebellion. Number two, to put an end of sin. The word there means habitual sin and its penalty. Number three, to atone for wickedness, which means to pay the price for our crookedness. Now, you know what? You could argue, and I think correctly so, that those three things have already happened. Those three things happened when a man named Jesus Christ, who was the Son of God, hung on a cross, and he dealt with transgression, he dealt with sin, and he dealt with... Crookedness, iniquity. But when you look at these other three things, I think you would have a hard time saying those three things have happened. Look at this. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Hey, I love living in Wichita. I think it's the greatest city in the world. But you think we have everlasting righteousness here? I don't even have everlasting righteousness as far as my behavior in my own life. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To make all prophecy history. Well, that's not the case. We got a ton of prophecy that hadn't been fulfilled yet. And then number six, to sanctify or to anoint the most holy place. That's the holy of holies of a temple that hasn't even been built yet. What's the deal? God is saying at the end of 490 years, I'm going to do six things. Three of them have already happened. Three of them are out in our future. And that gives us a problem now. Because that 490 years would have transpired 
roughly 2,000 years ago. So God has said in 490 years, I'm going to do these six things. And here we are, 2,500 years later, half of them have been done, half of them haven't been done. So what's the deal? Was God able to kick, you know, was he able to do the first three and not able to do the second three? And here's the key. You ready? Take a deep breath. God broke the 490 years up into three segments. Let's discover those three segments. Ready? Verse 25. God says to Daniel, know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, that's the Messiah, there will be seven sevens, that's 49 years, and there will be 62 sevens, that's 434 years. So now Daniel is dealing with two segments of that 490 years, and God is saying, okay, what's going to happen is there's going to be a decree that the people of Israel can go home. Artaxerxes issued that decree, that decree in the month of Nisan in the year 445. And seven sevens, or 49 years later, the city was completed. But now, 434 years from that, which would be basically 483 years if you consider the total, God told Daniel, Messiah is going to come. Wow. So let's see what we have. 490 years, it's all going to be settled. 483 years, Messiah comes. If I'm Daniel, I don't get this. What's the deal with the remaining seven years? If in 490 years, God's going to do all this cool stuff, and God says in 483 years, the Messiah is going to come, I'm going to assume the Messiah is going to accomplish all of it. What is the deal with the remaining seven years? And then God drops a bomb on Daniel. He drops a bomb on Daniel that no Jewish person who was looking for the Messiah could have ever imagined. Because you see, they thought that when Messiah comes, he was going to be their champion. He was going to be their ruler. In the time when Jesus did come, they were being ruled by Rome. And so the people of that time thought, as probably you and I would have thought, when the Messiah comes, he's going to conquer Rome and he's going to elevate the throne of Israel to the stratosphere. That's what they were expecting. And yet here's what God says to Daniel almost 500 years before Jesus was born. After, this is verse 26, after this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. Oh. Can, did I read? I mean, if I'm Daniel, I'm like, Lord, this is freaking me out. Did I read this right? I thought when Messiah came, everything's going to be cool. And yet you just said that 483 years after this proclamation, Messiah is going to come, but then he's going to be killed and it's going to look like he didn't accomplish anything. Well, that leaves seven years, doesn't it? And so God explains what's going to happen in those seven years. And that's in verse 27. And for the first time in the history of the Bible, we get an introduction to someone whom we refer to as Antichrist. Read with me. Verse 27. The ruler, Antichrist, will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven, but after half this time, he will put an end to sacrifices and offerings. So if you want to understand Daniel's 490 years, here's what you have to realize. 483 years after this prophecy, the clock began with Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild Jerusalem, Jesus came. And just as God told Daniel, he was killed. And I guess from the outside, it could have looked like he accomplished nothing. 
and the clock stopped. The stopwatch was pressed at the moment when Jesus died on the cross. Even though I've been here for 34 years and I consider myself a Kansan, I'm from Texas. And down in Texas, high school football is king. I mean, high school football is the state religion of the state of Texas. And I remember several years ago, there was a playoff game in Texas high school football. I believe it was somewhere in the panhandle. And they were into the fourth quarter and the score was tied. And a horrible storm, thunderstorm came up with lightning and the stadium was evacuated and the storm continued on. Finally, they sent everybody home that night and they had stopped the clock right where the game was suspended. People went home that night and then they came back the next morning. I think it was like 10 o'clock the next morning. And at 10 o'clock, the players assumed the spots where they were on the field. The clock started and the rest of the game was played. Now, here's the thing. In the way that game transpired, it transpired with, I think, 48 minutes was the length of a football game in those days, high school football game. It, the clock just ticked down like it did in any other game. But here's the deal. When that clock stopped, a lot of stuff happened in between then and when the game picked back up. People went home. They had dinner. They went to sleep. They got up the next morning. They had breakfast. They got dressed. They came back, and the clock started again. That's a good illustration for what God is saying to Daniel. He is saying, look, this clock's going to run for 483 years. It's going to leave seven years. But there's a point where this clock's going to stop. What is that point? Messiah's going to die. It's going to look like he didn't accomplish anything. Accomplish anything. Now, here's the beauty of this. We understand what Daniel could have never understood. We understood that God had a plan for that period of time, like in the football game where they went home and had dinner and went to sleep. God had a plan for that season. He wanted to do something outside of his covenant with Israel, which is still in effect. He wanted to build something in which all peoples of all nations would be part of. We know that as the church. And so consequently, right after Jesus rose from the grave, Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit came and energized the group of people that were there. And today you and I are living We are living in that gap of time between the 483rd year and the seven years left to go. But here's the thing. The clock is ticking down on us. The clock is ticking down because God has extraordinary things to do. Now, if you miss this, I think you'll miss the essence of understanding this. When God came to Daniel and talked to him about the 490 years, look at his language. He said, a period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people. Well, who were his people? Jews. And for your holy city, Jerusalem. See, these 490 years were never about us. This was always about God's working with Israel. So that's the thing to understand. By the way, for all of us in America, it's good to know every once in a while not everything is about us. Right? This is not about us. So to answer our first two questions today, that's what we learned first about the seven years, although it's in the Bible and a lot of other places. And it's a little bit of what God's up to. But some of you may be out there thinking, wait a minute, Park, I'm still hung up on Jesus' comment that these seven years are going to be the worst years, worse than any other time in history, never be again, and if the days hadn't been shortened, nobody would, would survive. Do I go through that? I mean, because clearly we see that tribulation. I mean, we know we're in the last days. We've already cleared that. And when we look at the things that the Bible talks about in Revelation, about, you know, a global economy and no one being able to buy or sell without the mark, the technology's already here. I mean, we can just feel the chill winds coming off the tribulation. Am I going to go through it? 
Am I going to be here when the Antichrist is here? In a word, no. Several years ago, I was teaching on this, and a guy in our church, and I, the reason I, let me take a time out for a moment. There are other schools of thought on when Jesus will come back in the evacuation. Some say, well, he'll come back in the middle of the tribulation. Some say he'll come back at the end of the tribulation. And uh, so a guy, guy in our church said, hey, pastor, there's this guy. He's got a syndicated international Christian radio broadcast, and he, he does some answering of questions. And he's written a book that says that the rapture won't happen if it happens until the end of the tribulation. You need to read his book. And I'm like, no, I don't need to read his book because he's a friend of mine. We play golf together. And I cornered him in a booth in, Fred, in a Freddy's in northwest Arkansas on this very point. And modesty forbids me to tell you how the conversation went. You can ask Mary Alice. She was there. Guys, let me just tell you. I've seen, just, I've seen everything there is to see. I've, I've studied this my entire life. I really believe God makes a compelling narrative. So I'm not saying I'm the authority. I'm just telling you I think the Bible introduces itself and explains itself. And I'm going to tell you what I believe the Bible says. Now, I'm not going to give you every proof because I have a raft of them. Well, I believe Jesus is coming back before the tribulation begins. But I'm going to give you some of them here today, and then we'll be through. Before I begin to make the case, I want to give you three bullet points, and then we'll work through processing the logic associated with those. Here's the first one. The beginning of the tribulation is the purpose of the rapture. Let's just file that away. In other words, the very reason why God evacuates us is because of the beginning of the tribulation. So the idea that the rapture takes place in the middle of the tribulation fails to deal with that huge point, which is that the tribulation is what the rapture is all about. So the beginning of the tribulation is the purpose of the rapture. Number two, we're going to see this in Scripture. God has not destined us to experience his, to experience his wrath of judgment, which is part of the essence of the tribulation. So we're not destined for that. There is God's judgment being poured out. A lot of, we'll talk about this next week. There's a complication to the tribulation in the sense that part of it is God's judgment. Part of it is this world has flipped God off for thousands of years and said, we don't want you. God is going to say, okay, I'll leave the room. And that's one of the things that makes the tribulation so horrible. So God has not destined us for that wrath of judgment. And then here's the third thing, and we've already touched on this. The final seven years isn't about us. It's about God finishing and fulfilling his promises that he's made to the nation of Israel. Okay, here's key number one. We've asked the question, do we go through part of the tribulation? Do we go through any of it? Or does God evacuate us before the storm begins? Key number one, you'll need this. The tribulation begins. The kickoff, what even defines the beginning of the tribulation is the entrance of the Antichrist. You want to know, it's like today, some of you are going to go home and you're going to watch football today. You know what's going to define the game. One team is going to kick off to the other team. That's what will start the game. What will start the tribulation is the entrance of the Antichrist. Now, I want to do something for a few moments. And just please grant me a little bit of latitude on this. The last book of the Bible is called Revelation. Real quickly, it's not called Revelations, it's called Revelation. In fact, the, the, the full title of the book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation comes from two Greek words, apokalumo, which means to pull the veil away. 
So in effect, in essence, what Revelation is, is pulling back the veil and showing us Jesus as he truly is. That's the whole purpose of the book. It's not revelations of the future. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the deal. The book of Revelation is freaky, and I'm not going to mince words with you. It is a freaky book. And a lot of us as Christians, like, I stay away from that book because there's a lot of weird stuff in there, and there's a lot of stuff I don't get. One of the problems that we have with Revelation is the failure to understand how the book is laid out. So if you have your Bible with you today, or if you even have a Bible app with you, I'm just going to encourage you to open to the book of Revelation, 22 chapters at the end of your book, at the end of your Bible. Revelation is divided really into four sections, primarily three. We'll talk about the first three. Revelation chapters one through three have to do with the time we're living in right now, the church age. If you read Revelation one through three, you're going to read about Jesus and messages that he gives to seven churches. So if you want to know where we are in the book of Revelation right now, we're in Revelation one through three. Now, I want to talk about the two next sections. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, everything that happens in those two chapters are what's going on in heaven. And Revelation chapter 6 through 19 is the tribulation going on on earth. So the section Revelation 4 and 5 and 6 through 19 are happening at the same time. 4 and 5, what's going on in heaven? 6 through 19, what's going on on the earth? And so in Revelation chapter 6, you have the beginning of the tribulation. All the way to chapter 20, you have Armageddon, the end of the tribulation, and the ultimate return of Jesus with you and me. And then, of course, in chapters 21 and 22, which I guess we could call a fourth section, it's, it's about what heaven's going to be like. So again, ready? Can we just go over that one more time? Revelation 1 through 3, church age. We're living in it right now. Revelation 4 and 5, what happens in heaven during the tribulation? Revelation chapter 6 through 19, tribulation, what's going on here on the earth? Now, with that in mind, I want us to notice that at the beginning of chapter 6, which is the beginning of the tribulation, that seven-year period of, of time that we've been talking about, we meet somebody. Now, it says the first thing that happens in tribulation is a rider comes out on a white horse. Who that? Who's the rider? Warren Wiersbe, the great Bible scholar, who not only has just written some of the greatest books to help us understand the Bible, he was a friend of mine. And Warren Wiersbe had this to say about who this rider is. And I just want to read it because it's better than I can say it. The first horse is white and his rider is given a bow and a crown. Do not confuse this scene with what happened in Revelation 19.11 where we see Christ riding in contest. No, the rider here is Antichrist, the false Christ, beginning his conquest on earth. The fact that he has a bow but no arrows indicates that he conquers the nations peacefully. After the church has been raptured, the way will be open for the Antichrist to move in triumph, as in 2 Thessalonians 2. There will be a false peace temporarily, for he will unite Europe and make his pact with the Jews. This passage parallels Matthew 24, 5, which is the Olivet Discourse, prophecy that Jesus gave, and fulfills Christ's prophecy in John chapter 5 and verse 43. Dr. Warren Wiersbe. So the first key is tribulation begins with the entrance of the Antichrist. Number two, you needed that for this. The Antichrist can't be in place until something huge happens. So something big has got to happen before he can come. What is that? I know I'm, it's like, got to be like drinking out of a fire hose right now. 
But last weekend, we talked about the best description of the rapture. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, the chapter numbers are not inspired of God. They were put in the Bible a thousand years later just to help us navigate. Every once in a while, a chapter number is in exactly the wrong place. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that chapter number is in a bad place because right after Paul tells us Jesus is coming back and the rapture is going to happen, he keeps talking about it. And it goes into the first part of chapter 5. Now, we've just said that the Antichrist can't come on the scene until something big happens. And as Paul begins to talk to us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we learn why the Antichrist can't come yet. Read with me. 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul was concerned that his people would become easily unsettled or alarmed. And he said that day of the Lord, or they would be alarmed that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. That's the Antichrist. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. And Paul says to his congregation in Thessalonica, and you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. So in other words, Satan would have brought him on the scene, but he can't bring him on the scene because something is holding him back. And Paul said to the people of his day, you know what's holding him back. Verse seven, he expands. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. John called it the spirit of antichrist. It's already in our world. He's saying the essence of the attitude of him is already working in the world. But the one who now holds it back will continue to hold it back until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Who's he talking about? Who's the he that's keeping the Antichrist from coming on the scene? Hey, that's that's too easy. That's a two-inch putt. The one who's holding the Antichrist back is the one who came on the day of Pentecost and started the church up, the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying, you understand that the Antichrist can't come until the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way. Oh, that's really interesting. You know, we're in the church age right now. What what was the definitive moment that started us? The coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples on the night of his arrest, he said, I'm going, but I'm sending the Holy Spirit. He's going to come. He's going to energize you. All this time, the Holy Spirit of God is holding back the Antichrist because he's at work with the church age. But the moment is coming when he's going to be pulled out of the way And the Antichrist is coming. Now, here's the question. If we never existed, the church never existed until the Holy Spirit came, are we staying here after the Holy Spirit leaves? No. No chance. Let me show you that. This this always makes chills go up and down my spine. Remember I said if you want to find where we are in Revelation, you find that in chapters 1 through 3? That's our time right now. That's the church age. In Revelation 1 through 3, God says something verbatim seven times. Hey, if you find something in the Bible one time, it's true. You find it twice. God's saying, pay attention. You find something. In fact, as far as I know, this is the only thing that you really find in the Bible seven times. But you find this statement verbatim. Let me read them to you real quickly. Don't 
get annoyed at me because they're all the same. In Revelation 2.7, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 2.11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3, verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you know that expression only occurs one more time in the book of Revelation? It occurs in chapter 13, in the very middle of the tribulation, in chapter 13, verse 9. You want to hear what it says? He who has an ear, let him hear. Two things are missing. The spirit and the church. Because in the tribulation, you won't have the Spirit of God working as he does in our era, and you won't have the church because an evacuation has taken place. One more thing, and I'll be through. Why? Why are we taken out? Is it because we're so good? I doubt that. If I were God, I think I'd let us go through the tribulation. I mean, when I look at the church today, including me, but God is, God is very, very loving, isn't he? He's very gracious. I want you to see something. I want to read this out of the message because, you know, sometimes the message is really, really good, sometimes not so good, but this is one of the few times, or one of the, I mean, there are many times, I guess, but this is one of the times the message just really kind of says it the way I think it should be said. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, that's the chapter we were in, I don't think, friends, I need to deal with you the question of when this is going to happen. You know as well as I that the day of the master's coming can't be posted on our calendars. He won't call ahead and make an appointment any more than a burglar would. So anybody who tells you they know when Jesus is coming in the rapture, run away from that person they don't know. About the time everybody's walking around complacently congratulating each other. Oh, that sounds like social media, doesn't it? Anyway, <laughs> let that be a, that, that's just me. That's not the Bible. It's pretty good though, isn't it? Uh, about the time everybody's walking around complacently congratulating each other, we sure got it made, now we can take it easily. Suddenly, everything will fall apart. It's going to come as suddenly as, and inescapably as birth pangs to a pregnant woman. But friends... You're not in the dark. So how could you be taken off guard by any of this? You're sons of light, daughters of the day. We live under wide open skies and we know where we stand. So let's not sleepwalk through life like others. Let's keep our eyes open and be smart. People sleep at night and get drunk at night, but not us. Since we're creatures of the day, let's act like it. Walk out into the daylight, sober, dressed up in faith, love, and the hope of salvation. And here's my line that I want to get across to you. God did not set us up for angry rejection or wrath, but for salvation. Now, the word salvation there means rescue. So I want you to read that with the full definition of those words. God did not set us up for wrath, but for rescue. As I said to you at the beginning of this talk, I was right where the hurricane hit a few days ago. And we saw, you saw so many pictures of people who were being rescued from the flooding and from the hurricane's path. 
The storm is coming. But God did not destine us for wrath. He destined us for rescue by our master, Jesus Christ. Hey, when Jesus comes for us, he's not sending a committee. He's not sending a surrogate. We have been set up for rescue personally by Jesus Christ himself. He died for us, a death that triggered life, whether we're awake with the living, alive when Jesus comes back, or asleep with the dead. Either way, we're alive with him. So speak encouraging words to one another. Build up hope so you'll all be together in this. No one left out. No one left behind. Ooh, let's just go over that real quickly for about another 60 seconds. Paul is talking to us who are going to be evacuated before the storm. And he's saying, wait a minute, your life should be different from the people around you. Notice, first of all, he said, let's not sleepwalk through life. And then secondly, he said, since we're creatures of the day, let's act like it. Do you know my problem with me and the rest of the Christians in our generation? We don't act like it much. We act like we're just like everybody else. I'm not talking about looking weird, looking freaky, you're talking freaky. I'm just saying we ought to care about stuff that the people around us don't necessarily care about because we know what we're headed for. Jesus is coming. And so Paul said, since we're creatures of the day, let's act like it. And then I love this, verse 11. So speak encouraging words to one another. Build up hope. You guys know that on top of pastoring this great church, I speak to Christian leaders all over the country, many of them by phone every day of my life. When I started this thing, I was a kid preacher. Now I'm an elder statesman. I don't know how that happened. I've never seen a time where Christians are as discouraged and depressed as we are today. You know why? We're looking at what's going on here. But hey, Jesus said, when this stuff starts to go down, Lift up your heads because your redemption is getting close. Then with all the crazy stuff that's going on in the world, yeah, we need to process it. We need to lean into it. We need to do what we can do to change the world. But after all, we're not staying here. We weren't destined for the God's wrath. We were destined to be rescued. And so before this storm starts, we're going to be evacuated out and we're going to be in Revelation 4 and 5 while chapters 6 through 19 are going on on the earth. Okay? Isn't that good news? I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart because I know that this is not an easy sermon to listen to. It's like drinking out of a fire hose. But I wanted to do what I believe God has called me to do. The Bible tells us that the pastor is to be a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed by rightly dividing the word of truth. And my goal today was to open the word of God and to give it to you in a way that makes sense. And I want to thank you for your studiousness and your attention today, not to me, but to God's word and what God has to say. When I walk off this stage today in a few minutes, the word that's going to stand out to me or the expression that's going to stand out to me is from 1 Thessalonians 5, what always stands out. We weren't destined to wrath. We were destined for salvation. I want you to know that in the greatest sense, that's true for all of us. God doesn't want to see anyone go to hell. In fact, the Bible says God isn't willing that anybody should perish. God wants you to be, he wants you to be eternally rescued, not just from the tribulation, but from hell. And to have your sins forgiven. 
And regardless of what you've done, knowing that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, whenever you die or whenever Jesus comes back, you'd instantly go be with God. And he made a way. Hey, the story of the Bible is man blowing up his way in Genesis 3, and the rest of the Bible is all about God making a way for us to come back to him. That's what the Bible's about. That's why God sent Jesus into our world. He ran the table for 33 years, never did anything wrong. And then he took that perfect life and he laid it on a cross. And I can never teach this as like I feel it. But do you understand that when Jesus died on the cross, a trade took place? A trade that's still the best trade I've ever heard of. The way God saw it, my sin and your sin was clicked and dragged to Jesus' account, and he was punished on the cross for your sin and my sin. And anyone who receives Jesus has his righteous, perfect life clicked and dragged from Jesus Christ and put under your name and my name. You know why I'm not worried about God opening the books at the judgment? Is right under the name Mark Hoover, it will say, see Jesus Christ. I'm a total screw-up. Lord knows I should go to hell faster than anybody else. But Jesus came. And he lived the life that I can't live, and he died the death that I couldn't die. So that by me putting my faith and trust in him, the righteousness of Jesus could be clicked and dragged to my account, and my sin was clicked and dragged to Jesus' account. And three days later, when he stepped out of the grave, it's an exclamation point saying, I did everything I came to do. And if you're willing to believe, if you're willing to put your confidence in Jesus Christ, you can have that enormous, <laughs> unparalleled trade happen in your life. You won't deserve it any more than I do, but you can walk out of here and know for sure that you're going to heaven because Jesus' record is attached to your name. Man, religion can't pull that off, can it? That's why I hate religion. Religion's just wannabe stuff. This is forever life change. And if you're willing to do that, you can pray. You can say, how do, you, how do I get in on that? You just ask. Just believe and ask. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer, and these aren't magic words, but I'm going to give you a chance to pray a prayer that reaches out to God. And if you, I'm going to pray these lines slowly because you want to decide if you want to own it and say it personally to God, okay? Here we go. We'll just all pray with me, please. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I ask you to save me. Give me Jesus' righteousness. I give him my sin. I believe he died for me. I believe he arose from the grave. And since he's alive, I want Jesus to be my king. Thank you for not destining me for judgment, but for destining me to salvation, for rescue. In Jesus' name. If you just prayed that prayer with me, I have a gift box for you. I got some awesome stuff in this box. There's a Bible just like I preach from, brand new. There's a little book I wrote that will answer a lot of questions. 
and just some really, really cool stuff. It's just our way of saying, we want to support you in the biggest decision of your life. We want to come alongside and be an asset. Nobody will hassle you, stalk you. You can go to any info center here at New Spring, and all you got to do is say, I pray with Mark, and they'll give it to you. Please don't leave. I know we get crowded at the end of the service. Please don't leave without that. Thank you for being here today. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend.